So Money, episode 1254, Ask Farnoosh. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Hey, everybody. Welcome to So Money. It's Friday, September 17th. Ask Farnoosh Friday. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Do you think it's hard to pronounce my name? I find that my entire life, I've always found it a bit of a chore to tell someone my name. Just, you know, they're always like, what? And I have to spell it. And then they're like, oh, it's spelled just like it sounds. I didn't. Anyway, all this to say that this week, I got a phone call from a fraudster posing as a Bank of America rep. And this was after this person or this group of people sent me a text uh, regarding a potential hack into my account, wanting to uh, have me call in to give them like my account name and password, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, this person, I wrote all about it for CNET. So I'll just put the article up on somoneypodcast.com and you can like get more of what I'm basically trying to say here and summarize, but this person pronounced my name correctly on the phone. This uh, alleged fraudster who was trying to get my personal identifying information. She was very nice and polite, articulate, uh, and sounded like, you know, someone you might know and befriend. And she was like, hi, Mesukith Farnoosh Tarabi. And I was like, whoa. But of course, maybe she Googled me and, you know, my name is all over the internet and you, my name is sounded out all over the internet. So I just realized that. Fraudsters are getting really good at their jobs, everybody. And it is the topic of my article this week for CNET. So if you haven't um, checked that out, please do public service announcement even you know people who dedicate their entire lives to financial literacy and education and i'm supposed to be on top of this stuff i nearly got duped and it i break it down in the article tell you how it happened and i spoke to bank of america public relations to really understand what their protocol is in the event that they need to reach a customer, a client regarding an alleged hack. And I would trust that this is pretty much protocol across all the major financial institutions. So check out the article. It's called Fake or For Real, How to Know if a Text from Your Bank is Legit. Speaking of great articles, if I may say so, this week, I was actually interviewed in a Washington Post piece this week. Uh, They have a great financial branch of the Washington Post for women, financial content for women called The Lily. Have you heard of it? Uh, A reporter from The Lily, Olivia McCormack, reached out to me this week because she wanted to write about female breadwinners because uh, apparently, this is where I'm really like revealing my age here, um, Casey Musgraves, who I guess is like a huge singer, pop star, um, wrote a song about her relationship being the female breadwinner in the relationship. It didn't go very well. And it's now a top ranking song. And it has sparked a renewed conversation in this area of like, what do you do when you're a female breadwinner? So I gave my two cents because I have spent uh, an entire career on this at this point. And so shout out to 
Olivia McCormack's great article in The Lily, part of the Washington Post this week. And that article is called Casey Musgrave's Breadwinner Resonated for Women Who Outearn Their Partners. The song describes how a partner's initial acceptance of a woman's success soon turns into jealousy. I talked about how, in my experience, and in interviewing hundreds of women, you know, as women, we are not I mean, typically raised with this idea that we're going to arrive in a relationship making more than our male spouses if we're in a hetero relationship. We don't see this modeled all the time in society. We Chances are we grew up in a more likely traditional household where if we had a mother and a father, the father made more. Not always, but Generally, this is what happens. And so you arrive in your own relationship as the female breadwinner and, you know, you might have a few questions. You don't know how to act. You don't know how you're supposed to feel. And I also mentioned in the article that what often is the sort of silent killer in marriages, in relationships, really, where there is a female breadwinner is gender role expectations. If you go into a relationship expecting that as a woman or as a man, you have to do certain things because that's part of being a man or a woman, you're going to run into a lot of issues. You're going to run up against a lot of conflict. And this is part of it. I think when we think about who makes more money in a relationship, we tend to think, oh, it's the guy. And and this isn't just me talking or even just all my sources talking. This is years and years of research. The latest Pew study actually finds that a majority of men and women think it is the man's responsibility to be the breadwinner in the marriage. So we have a lot of work to do in this department. No wonder there are songs being written about it still in 2021 and now articles. But check out that piece if you're fascinated, as I am, on the dynamics of female breadwinners in relationships and all that juicy stuff. I promise we'll get to the mailbag soon. Just want to give a shout out to our reviewer of the week this week. I'm going to pick from iTunes, Steve from Menlo Park, who is a Gen Xer, sort of like me. I'm on the cusp of Gen X, Gen Y. He says, thank you for the interview with Margaret Detweiler. As an older Gen Xer, I enjoyed the extra attention paid to my generation. Overall, Farnoosh delivers great content three days a week. I enjoy her interviews and I learned something extra during the Ask Farnoosh podcast on Friday. Nicely done. He goes on to say that he learned about the podcast back in 2015 when I first launched and he listens faithfully to this day. His favorite guest is Ramit Sethi, whom Farnoosh inspired to make his own podcast. That is true. I'm not the only one. I'm among many, many uh, podcasters who encouraged Ramit to do this. And his show is awesome. If you haven't checked it out, it's called I Will Teach You To Be Rich. Also the name of his book is the name of his podcast. Steve from Menlo Park, he says, thanks so much for so money, a gift in my podcast library that keeps on giving. Well, Steve, I'm honored to know that A, we have such a smart guy in the audience um, from Menlo Park, no less, all those smart Silicon Valleyers. My parents actually live not too far from Silicon Valley and I miss visiting. I used to go at least once or twice a year and well, maybe we'll get back to that. Let's get in touch, Steve. I'd love to see how I might be able to, you know, help you or we could just hash things out. You can email me, farnoosh at somoneypodcast.com. You can direct message me on Instagram at farnoosh tarabi. Let me know you're the Steve who left this kind review and I will follow up. I just got off the phone this week with another listener who won a review who um, has made great strides since listening to this show. Started back a couple of years ago, a few years ago, when she was uh, an actor performing in New York City and piecing together gigs and working different shifts. And it was, you know, you know, the drill. 
got to a point in her 30s where she's like, okay, I need to make some serious money now, pay off my credit card debt and really start uh, getting a handle on my finances. And she says this podcast really helped motivate her. And fast forward to today, she's making six figures. She is living on her own, got her own apartment. She's paid off the credit card debt. She's saving in her 401k. She's got a rainy day reserve. So we were just talking about how she might be able to go back to acting now that she's created some stability in her life and how to bring back some of that passion that she misses. So always enjoy these conversations with listeners. And if you'd like to connect, I always highlight a review from the iTunes review section, usually iTunes, sometimes elsewhere. And that person and I um, will be able to get a 15 minute phone call together. So hope uh, you and I, whoever's out there, will be talking soon. If you miss any of this week's shows, I encourage you to go back and listen. On Monday, we did all things child tax credit. So this week, actually, I think uh, Wednesday, September 15th, was when the next child tax credit went out to direct deposit. Um, Most families qualify for this credit, but if you're not getting it or not sure even what it is, listen to that episode. We talk about important stuff, important money for families right now that are struggling to put food on the table, pay for childcare, whatever your childcare related costs are. And if you're not even a parent to a child, but you're a grandparent, you're someone who's taking care of full-time another child, you may be eligible. And on Wednesday, we spoke to Allison Task, who is no stranger to So Money. She is my friend and she runs her her own coaching practice where she helps people with life and career transitions. She's got a new journal out and she gave really important advice about financial self-care. What does that look like? What does that mean? So check out our conversation with Allison on Wednesday. Really enjoyed that. All right, let's go to our mailbag. I got so many questions this week. I apologize ahead of time. If you don't hear your question, stay tuned. I'm saving so many of these questions for next week. I got so much. It's great. A lot of good stuff. A lot of different juicy, meaty questions. Our first one is from Sam who says, hey, Farnoosh, I love your show. When I was born, my parents bought life insurance for me. I am now 26 and I am the main beneficiary. I'm not married. I'm debt free. And I have six months of emergency savings. I have about $15,000 saved saved for the beginning of a down payment on a home and I have 40,000 in my 401k at work. Well, anyways, the life insurance is worth about $11,000 now if I cash it out. I want to eventually use that money towards my house purchase. And I was wondering, would you keep it in the life insurance policy or would you cash it out and put it in an investment account? All right, Sam, thanks for your question. So you have life insurance right now. Sounds like it's a a universal or whole life insurance policy that has a a cash arm to it that's worth $11,000 if you cash it out. At that point, I'm I'm assuming the life insurance will no longer be valid. Um, You're 26 years old. You're single. You don't have any dependents. I don't think you need life insurance. I think that was very nice that your parents thought ahead and got this for you, but I think you can put this money to better work right now. And if anything, if you wanted to take out a term policy, that is something that would be maybe just to replace your year's income or salary. You can shop around for life insurance, term life insurance. And like it sounds term, it ends after a certain number of years. You get like a 20 year policy. But I think 26, given that you don't have kids or any dependents, it's early to be putting your money towards this. I think there's other stuff you want to be checking off your list, adding to your 401k, adding to your savings account for that home down payment. 
you can prioritize this in other ways right now to give yourself more of a leg up in your mid 20s. I think having 40,000 in your 401k at 26 is great. I think that's how much I had in my 401k at 26. And the more you earn, obviously, the more you can contribute to the 401k. I hope you're investing at least 10% there of your salary. So I'm giving you my blessing to cash this life insurance policy out. But before you do, please call the life insurance company and understand if there are any fees or penalties or anything like that associated with it. Um, I am not a financial advisor, so I don't want you to do this without having consulted with somebody who is more experienced in knowing what this life insurance policy is all about. And maybe have a conversation with your parents. I know you're the beneficiary now, uh, but talking to them about your plans and where you want to put this money to greater use, just keeping them in the in the loop might be a, a nice thing to do. After all, they were nice enough to think of you to get this policy out for you and just, you know, keeping them involved uh, might not be a bad thing. Good luck. All right. Next is Nadia. And she says, I am getting out of a toxic marriage and going through a rough divorce. We have no children. While managing this, I'm trying to figure out next steps in life. And my major question is where to move with a fully remote job and how to determine what I can afford with owning a new house by myself. What factors should I take into consideration in setting up my budget, not just for a home purchase, but running costs as well? Thanks for all your work to empower women. I'm an avid follower of your content. Nadia, my hat's off to you. Congratulations. What you've just done is extremely brave. Going through a divorce is tough. It's more than tough. And I applaud you for taking this giant step in your life, for reclaiming your independence, and you're asking all of the right questions. I would start by first thinking about what kind of lifestyle do you want? You know, have you thought about any changes that you want? in your life and what part of the country or what region of the country might provide this for you? Are you looking for a particular type of community? Are you looking to be closer to friends, family? I often think that when you are starting fresh, starting new, it does help to have something in that new town, new city that grounds you, whether that's a built-in community, whether that's knowing that your best friend's just an hour away, or knowing that, you know, hey, I'm a, I'm a nature lover and where I'm going, it's all about that. I can bike everywhere. There's the farmer's market. I can really like quickly get into uh, being a part of the community. There's stuff already there set up for you to just plug into. And I think change is really important at this stage in your life. You know, I can only imagine you kind of wanting to break from the past. And part of that may mean physically moving, but really thinking about going somewhere where you can start fresh and you can kind of have a clean slate. But if you wanted that sense of security and comfort and groundedness, um, what does that mean to you? And, and how can you make sure that that's accessible to you in some way, shape or form there? That's one of the great things about working remotely is that you can like pick up and move anywhere. I mean, you could go overseas or you could like bounce around for a while. I had a friend who went through a divorce and she went to a different part of the country for an entire year. She mapped it out. She's like, I'm going to spend three months in Portland and then six months in Boston. And then I'm going to go to New York and she Airbnb it. And that gave her a chance to experience all these different parts of the country that she maybe never really visited for an extended period of time and knew she had friends there so she could have some you know, show around. But then after a year 
or so of kind of Airbnb hopping, living out of her suitcase, putting everything in storage, living out of her suitcase, she uh, landed on New York. And uh, I'm not surprised. But I think that was awesome. I was just reminded of that and wanted to pass that on to you. Maybe that's something that you would be into. But um, really, you could do anything you want. Now, as far as affording this, it will take going back to the basics, right? I don't know if your partner was the one who managed the money in your in your marriage or was more on top of that kind of stuff and budgeting and all that. But of course, now you're going to have to do this independently. I would start with looking at what your needs are, needs versus wants, right? This is basic stuff. You can look at my very first book, um, You're So Money, for some of the frameworks there. But it's you know food housing, transportation, those are the three big buckets to fill. Hopefully your job is offering you health insurance, but if it's not, that's another bucket to fill. And then thinking about your goals. If I want to buy a home uh, in a year or two, what is that going to look like in terms of the down payment and monthly affordability? All of this may not really materialize truly until you decide where you're going to move uh, and what the living costs are going to be there. And one last thing, as I will say, is there are financial advisors out there that have an additional certification, the CFDA, which is which means that they are a certified divorce financial analyst. My former financial advisor had this designation because it is important that you work with a financial advisor that understands some of the unique nuances, say that 10 times fast, the unique nuances, circumstances of a divorcee and rebuilding your financial life, what that involves, and sometimes the communication that needs to take place with your ex to get squared away. It's helpful to have somebody in the middle of that or somebody who is on your team to help walk you through all of that. So you can go to XY Planning, for example, which is this great website directory of financial planners that are fee only, uh, but some of them also are categorized by this by this designation, CDFA, Certified Divorce Financial Analyst. If you need help finding one, follow up with me, but um, you can search this online and you could probably ask around. Talking to other divorcees, friends who've been divorced is also extremely helpful. I, I can't speak from experience, but I know that there are organizations uh, dedicated to helping divorcees through this stage. And if you are into that, that's another resource. Good luck to you, Nadia. All right, this next one isn't a question so much, but it might prompt some some discussion. Um, it's a listener and she's just thanking me for episode 1247 on the penalty of female ambition. This was an interview that I did with Stephanie O'Connell Rodriguez. She's a financial expert and author. And actually I re-aired it recently because I loved it so much. It was actually one of the top listens of the summer. So I re-aired it over the uh, Labor Day week weekend. And um, this person says, I'm currently dealing with trauma from a similar experience and this episode helped me feel less alone. So here's what happened. She was recently editing an independent feature film for a very low flat rate. She found out she was being paid much less than the other department heads, even though was working on the film longer than any other department. She asked for more money, explained why she deserved it, and then was fired over an email and then completely gaslit. She says, sadly, these were women that fired me. 
They couldn't believe I was asking for more money because I was expected to be just a team player and do the work for the film. It's been extremely painful and now I'm terrified to fight for myself moving forward. But your episodes help inspire me to keep my head up. Thank you. Well, I just wanted to share this with everybody because one, if you're listening and you feel like this, you're not alone. That's why I did the episode because I do think, and Stephanie's really the one who spearheaded this thought leadership around female ambition penalty. You know, we're told uh, just ask for more and speak up. And then there's all these like Instagram cute videos that are like, take out the word just from your email, how to be assertive at work and lay down the law and get your seat at the table. And look, I... I appreciate that information. I appreciate that advice. I think that we should still practice it, but also recognize that we could suffer consequences, that we are walking into sometimes a work environment, to use this person's words, that are traumatic, hostile, and sometimes not just hostile because the men are making it hostile, but because the women are making it hostile. So this is everyone's problem to fix, I guess, is what um, Stephanie was saying on that interview. And what you're uh, articulating here, listener, is that it's not you versus them, although it can feel like that. We all have to be in on this together. And one experience is not defining your entire career. You learned from this. And I hope that in the next situation, you're going to continue to be vocal. And we all need to be talking about this out loud. Men, women, we need to not let anyone forget that this can happen and it's not acceptable. So I just wanted to say thank you to this person for writing in and being so open and honest about her experience. And if you're interested in hearing that episode, it was 1247. On September 1st, I re-aired the Female Ambition Penalty, a conversation with Stephanie O'Connell Rodriguez. Would encourage you to go back and listen. All right, next up is our friend Carlos, a listener who says, hey, Farnoosh, how to budget when a large portion of your income goes towards your elderly parents. My mother doesn't have anything for retirement. All right, Carlos, this is a, I'm glad you raised this. This is a lot of people helping their parents right now. Um, Sometimes you're a member of like the sandwich generation. You're taking care of elderly parents as well as your own family, or maybe you're just taking care of elderly parents. Sometimes this is cultural uh, where it is an expectation that children grow up to then take care of their parents. And sometimes parents, you know, they don't plan. They, they take everything and they give it to their kids and then they become, you know, 60, 70, 80 and they need financial help. That's why we talk all the time about why it's important for you while you can to invest for yourself, for your future, so that when you get older, if you have kids, um, they're not having to take care of you financially. Um, and that it doesn't become this necessity, this crisis, right? So Carlos, a couple thoughts here. Um, you know, firstly, Is there a way for you to reduce what you're spending towards taking care of your elderly parents while still taking care of them? So are they living on their own? Are they in assisted living? Could they live with you? Could you all move in together? You know, sometimes the cost of paying for an elderly parent's housing costs is the big issue. In this case, it sounds like you're paying for your mom's entire life right now and her home and all of that. So are there ways to combine costs, right? Live together. In that way, you're paying one rent or mortgage. You're paying one utility bill. 
you know, you're sharing food and all the other stuff. And, and so this is obviously a lifestyle shift and this may not even be possible depending on the needs that your mother has, if she has to be in an assisted living situation. But if she lived with you and still needed assistance, could you hire someone to come to the house and support her, which you'd have to do the math. Is it cheaper to have that happen versus her living away from you in an assisted living situation where they provide that. Um, so I think firstly, like thinking about how can we shift this arrangement? Um, so you're not just writing a check, but you're merging lives a bit. And I know that is a huge ask. <laughs> and I, I'm not assuming that this is even possible, but I'm just putting that out there because that is one way potentially to bring down costs, but not necessarily to the detriment of your mom. Something to think about. Do you have siblings or other members of your family who can pitch in? Could you do a fundraiser? Are there other people in your family that want your mom to be successful, that want your mom to be supported and doing something for her, like a gift raise, something like that? Um, you know, holidays are a great time to encourage nieces and nephews and aunts and uncles and cousins and grandkids to say, hey, let's put pull together, you know, 15, 25, $50, whatever we can to support grandma. She, uh, you know, has taken care of us all her life. Let's give her this nice gift of cash, which will help to, you know, it, depending on how much you raise, it could go a very long way. It could at least pay for maybe a month's worth of housing or any other costs. Or maybe if she needs a medical procedure or if she needs a new piece of equipment in the house to help her get around, that's also something to think about. Maybe making that gift towards something specific. I think that getting the family to rally behind this is something that I would do. And finally, you know, having a conversation with your mom about the constraints that this is putting on your finances. I do think that honesty is always important and letting her know that um, while you want to help and you are happy to help, this is restricting you in some ways. Are there ideas that she has about how she might be able to bring in more income somehow, or she can reduce her costs somehow to make it easier on you and her. Just my thoughts, Carlos, I care about you. I care about the situation. I really hope that you and your mom will be able to strike a better balance here. And I hope my advice was helpful. Next, Nicole received a $50,000 inheritance and doesn't know what to do with it. She's already investing 25% of her income towards retirement. Wow. Amazing. She says, is it okay to use this money to renovate our house? Nicole, well, if you have no other items on your to-do list, financial to-do list that you think should take precedence, things like having enough in a rainy day account, having at least a six-month savings cushion where for six months you could pay your bills if you had no income coming in. Sounds like you're already well ahead with retirement. I assume you have all the insurances that you need. With any windfall, it's an opportunity to first, I think, address the needs that you have, the immediate needs financial needs, and then to look at sort of your want list. And if all of your financial needs are checked off, Nicole, uh, then go to the wants list. And if renovating your house will bring you great joy, and hopefully you're going to make certain renovations that will add to the value of the home, start with the bathroom, start with the kitchen, instant appreciation to the home. Enjoy this money. And whoever left you this money, I'm sure would be happy to know that it was spent in such a way that brought you fulfillment and these days, our homes, I mean, we're spending a lot of time in them. So making sure that it is 
customized to your liking. It makes you smile. It's comforting to you. It goes a very long way. And I did a little bit of, uh, I don't, I guess you can't call it renovating, but remodeling. I changed some furniture around. I got new paintings in the last year. It was a nice project to have. It was a kind of like a nice experience, if I can say nice. It wasn't, uh, you know, did not involve like plumbing and electric and all that stuff or breaking walls, which is a whole other potential situation. But I liked the distraction of thinking about something that wasn't, you know, about work or about the pandemic. So choosing a project like renovating a house, it can bring you financial gain potentially, adding value to your home. It could bring you great joy in your life. And it's a cool experience sometimes to go through that and feel very proud at the other end of it. So yes, Nicole, you have my blessing if you feel like all of your financial needs are being met. All right, last, Jeffrey says, I'm happy in my job. My fiance hates her job. She's a project manager, so obviously transferable skills. She has mentioned leaving her company, but never seriously considers it. We have all our ducks in a row, so even if there was a salary hit, we'd be fine. I'm wondering what I should do. At what point do I need to go from whatever you want to, I think you should seriously consider a change, or is that never my place? Oh my gosh, Jeffrey, I I went through this with my husband many years ago. We had just gotten married and I remember there was there were consecutive months and then those months became years of my husband bemoaning his job. And at first it was like, oh, I don't like my project. And then it became like, I can't stand my boss. And then it was like the totality of the job was just, you know, slowly chipping away at his soul. And it was definitely weighing on the relationship. And I do think it is your place to step in and not um, push, but really encourage, try to encourage, you know, and also to kind of reframe the situation. So sometimes when we feel like we're in a job, we've talked about on the show, you have to stay in the job because we should just be so happy to be there. We feel sometimes, or this idea of quitting, it signals that maybe we're giving up and, you know, culturally, maybe that's not how we were raised. We weren't raised to be quitters. And so quitting a job is sort of like putting us in this loser bucket and you don't know what's going on, right? I think it's important to really explore this with your partner and be like, what is keeping you from making the jump? What are you afraid of? Because we've got the financials intact. We can afford for you to be out of work for a while to figure things out. That could be something that's missing that she just needs to hear and really see too. Like showing her the numbers could sometimes really make a a shift. But I remember distinctly, it was my husband's birthday. I think he was turning 35 and we were at dinner We got to talking about work, obviously, and he was not happy. And he was saying, you know, work work sucks, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay, you've been talking about how you don't like work. And I just want to say that if this time next year you are still on this job and you still are unhappy, it is not the job's fault. And that was a little abrasive maybe, but I felt like it was time for him to hear that from me someone who wants him to be happy, who is recognizing something in him that is that has yet to be turned on. I don't know. It was like, sometimes you just need that spark. Sometimes you do need that push. Sometimes you need that vote of confidence too. And 
you know, in, in that conversation, in that same breath, you know, we talked about, I talked about how we could afford for him to go and maybe take some courses to reroute his career if that's something that he wanted to do. That we have options, that if he's feeling stuck, don't let the job be the reason he's feeling stuck. Um, it's not the job's fault. The job is saying all things but stay. <laughs> the job is every day telling him to leave and he is choosing to stay, that he is now making a choice to stay. I understand that it, it is a privilege to be able to quit your job. And I was reminding him of that privilege. I was like, you have the privilege, you have the right to leave. So take advantage of it. Use it, don't lose it. So I I feel you, Jeffrey. I That was you uh, not so long ago. And I think you do have a place here to be encouraging, to remind your partner that you have security and to maybe show them what the options are, you know, go explore together. I do think that this is really emotional for some people to quit for any, for any host of reasons. So maybe getting to that first would be a way to move forward. Good luck to the both of you. All right. That's a wrap, everybody. We have tons more questions we didn't get a chance to address. So make sure you are hitting that subscribe button and you will not miss future episodes of So Money, in particular, Ask Farnoosh, where I'm going to hopefully tackle your question if you didn't hear yours this week. Thanks so much for tuning in, everybody. Thanks for gathering with us here. And I hope your weekend, happy weekend, is so money. So money.